But it says here this hymn is by uh, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and others. Um, we'll talk about that. Uh, but that's a great hymn, isn't it? Um, uh, Dan called it a carol. It often gets called a carol. Um, I, I prefer to use the word hymn because I think that carol is kind of a pejorative word. It sort of makes something seem like less serious than it is. Um, <coughs> but, but I think that this might actually be the greatest, the single greatest hymn written in the English language. Uh, it's a good, beautiful and true picture of Jesus Christ. And today we have the real privilege of studying it together. Um, I realised this morning that this title uh, is somewhat optimistic. Um, perhaps it should be some things I hope uh, that you don't know about Hot Head <laughs> that I can now inform you of, uh, and then you can leave uh, uh, fully informed and being able to tell everybody. Um, uh, we're going to ask three questions about, about the hymn and answer them. Uh, first of all, what is its context? And that's very important to understanding it. Second, uh, how does the hymn respond to it? And then third, how and why uh, was it subsequently edited and altered? So, uh, firstly then, to go with the, the, the context, to understand the context in which the hymn was written, um, we first need to understand... Yeah, sorry, there's like, I think it's one between five. Uh, the handout, so... But, 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 um, we were hoping for less. Um, um, so, uh, Chris, Christianity at the beginning of the 18th, uh, uh, beginning of, uh, uh, the 18th century in England was really in trouble. We, we, we like to think that Christianity in our own time is in trouble, um, and that you know, this is the only time really that's been in trouble for a long time. But actually, at the beginning of the 18th century, Christianity was in really great trouble. So, so firstly, in the Church of England, uh, it would have been uh, taken over by a, or should I say, slowly anaesthetised, really, by a philosophy called latitudinarianism. So, what is latitudinarianism? I hear you cry. Well, it was uh, best described perhaps as an inclusive movement. Um, and it, it elevated the power of human reason, really, over anything else. It was a reaction against the Puritans of the previous century, this the, the early and middle 17th century. The Latitudinarians focused um, their powers more on reasonable Christianity, right? A sort of reasonable form of religion, concentrated around good works and enlightened thinking. And this, if you like, is sort of the birth of wishy-washy Anglicanism, right? Uh, here with, with the Latitudinarians. Wishy-washiness is quite a dangerous thing. It sounds like it's, it's not. But many latitudinarians actually held doctrines very loosely. Uh, they're more, they're not, subject, they're not really concerned with uh, strong belief in the virgin birth, for example, uh, or even the resurrection. Christianity for latitudinarians is about doing good things, being good people, being virtuous. And despite the influence of some orthodox thinkers who were latitudinarians, people like Bishop Joseph Butler, he was at the beginning of the 18th century, 
Uh, Orthodox Zionism was really dimi- uh, was diminishing um, under the, the spread of Latitudinarianism. Um, vicars were sort of becoming, I guess, local academics in a way. They might be more interested in studying geology or kind of early proto forms of, of science or philosophy and things like that. So they wouldn't have necessarily been, I guess, exegetes or great preachers, the kind that we uh, have today. Um, and in addition to this, uh, this effect of latitudinarianism upon the Anglican world, we also have really issues within the dissenting world as well. Um, and that, again, despite the fact that there were lots of popular uh, dissenting divines, people like Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, John Owen, and then later people like Isaac Watts, Philip Doddridge, uh, heretical movements had really begun to infiltrate dissenting Christianity, like non-Anglicans, Baptists, etc. And chief among those, uh, those heresies was a really ancient heresy called Arianism, uh, which is just uh, the belief that uh, denies uh, orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, denies that uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus for Arians is like a created being, just below God, above angels, above, above humans, etc. Uh, and this is very popular, uh, terrifyingly popular, actually. And so, uh, in addition to that, just to kind of go outside of England, in Scotland, in Wales, over in New England, in the colonies, uh, the Presbyterian and the Congregational churches, uh, they were doing okay. They held quite tightly to orthodoxy. But here too, the Puritan tradition was really waning. So it's important <coughs> actually for us to understand, as we start to look at Hot Herod Anderson, that as the 18th century began, Christianity in England was really faced with these two major threats, right? First, Latitudinarianism, which at worst uh, held that the historical doctrinal claims of Christianity weren't necessarily true or important. Christianity was just simply the best of Western thinking. And then Arianism, which denied the humanity and divinity of Christ. So, both of these viewpoints actually share one thing in common, uh, and both of them suggest that human beings are basically good, that they're basically sensible, and that we can really make up our own minds on matters of God, that we're equipped to do that. That there's no sense within either view that we're sort of blinded by sin, right? Or that any kind of spiritual rebirth is necessary. Yet despite, or perhaps, uh, perhaps because of these apparent difficulties, the conditions were really ripe for a revival, actually. And so in the late 17th century, there were small congregations of Anglicans who, across England, they began to gather in little local religious communities. And they would meet for prayer and for fellowship. They would fast together, things like that. And slowly that practice began to grow, uh, and there were more and more of these little communities. And it was adopted by a number of fairly prominent ministers, um, and, and that was including the rector of a church called St Andrew's Parish Church, which was in Epworth. And that church was called uh, Samuel Wesley. 
And Samuel Wesley actually wrote uh, an endorsement of this practice of gathering together for prayer. And that was called Letters Concerning the Religious Societies. It was published in 1700. And two of uh, Wesley's sons attended university here in Oxford in the 1720s and 30s. And the younger, Charles, who was a student at Christ Church, he began to organise a prayer meeting very similar to those that his dad uh, had been organising. And that became known as the Holy Club. And the people who, that was a derogatory nickname that was made up by Scottish students, as was the name for the people who attended it, and that was Methodists. And the members of the Holy Club, which included his brother John, uh, who by this point was a fellow at Lincoln College, they met to pray and to read theology uh, and to study the Bible and to encourage one another to good works. They had a sort of method, right, about working out their holiness. And then in the early 1730s, that club gained a new member, and his name was George Whitfield, and he was a student at Pembroke College. And what they didn't know as they were gathering these young men uh, is that to the east in Europe and to the west in New England, um, in the colonies, the winds of revival were really stirring. They couldn't know that as they met together. So we'll begin with the east. In 1727 there was a pietist revival uh, led by a chap who was the uh, Count of Zinzendorf. His name was uh, Nicholas Ludwig. And that was, in, uh, that was in Moravia, which is modern day, it's on the border of modern day Czech Republic and Germany. And uh, the Moravians, as they were called, they lived together, and they worked together, and they prayed together. And they essentially uh, tried to live in a way that the early church had in community. And they're especially noted um, as Mark Knoll, who's an <coughs> evangelical. A historian of evangelism. <laughs> They're especially noted, he says, for their intense devotion to hymnody. They wrote a lot of hymns, a huge number of hymns. And as, as they were practicing this sort of heady new type of devotion in the 1720s, they began to recognize the call to evangelism, and that particularly what needed evangelizing was the West. And so lots of Moravians went, started to journey to London and started to go across the colonies with the aim of sort of spreading the gospel there, right? Um, and their message spread so quickly that when George Whitfield joined the Holy Club six years after the revival in Central Europe had started, so uh, it's a young man, Charles Wesley, when he joined, gave him a piece of Moravian literature to read. So that happened very quickly. This Moravian literature, six years after the Bible started, has already been translated into English and printed in English and published. And this young man has got his hands on it. We shouldn't be surprised that he got his hands on it you know, here in, in Oxford or in, in London or maybe in Bristol. If he'd been back in Lincolnshire, I think it might have been a little more surprising. But still, that's very quick for, for, for back then. So, when, also then, when John and Charles, they went out on a mission to the US in 1735, and when, when they were on the ship, they encountered great difficulty crossing the Atlantic. Um, I actually can't remember if John and Charles went together. I think it might have just been John on, on his own first. Oh, yeah, it was, and then Charles joined him. Anyway, so when John was on the, John was on the, the ship, and he was astonished by these Moravians who were on board, because as the ship was looking like it, like it might sink, 
you've got you know, 100 foot waves, all that kind of thing. The Moravians would be below deck singing. And he was astonished by this, their faith. You know, everybody else is terrified, including, including the sailors. So, uh, as this tide of spirituality is washing over England from the east, there's another storm brewing in the west. And that was in Northampton, Massachusetts, where there was a revival in 1734. And that was led by a man called Jonathan Edwards, who was the pastor of one of the largest congregational churches in the, in the New World. And he was pre- uh, this was more centered around preaching. So he was preaching these really serious and stirring messages on the realities of sin and damnation, but also on the reality of the cross and on um, the necessity of redemption and rebirth by the death and resurrection of Christ. And Edwards wrote a short account of this revival and he sent it to a friend of his who was called Benjamin Coleman, and he lived in London. And Benjamin Coleman sent it to a friend of his, who was another minister, who was called John Geis. And John Geis enjoyed it so much that he sent it to a chap called Isaac Watts, who was his friend. And Isaac Watts felt that this was extremely important. And so Isaac Watts wrote to uh, Edwards and said, uh, you must give me a more substantial account of this. Uh, and Edwards had, by 1737, he'd... Uh, he'd sent it to uh, Watts and Watts had had it published in England. Copies of it were distributed as far east as Prussia, right on the edge of Europe, and back again in New England. So copies were printed in, the, in, in Britain and sent over. So this was very important as well. This really stirred people to it. It really stirred, the, it brought back uh, kind of waning Puritan tradition, it brought back uh, good Calvinism, it brought back um, this, uh, the, the importance and centrality of the cross uh, in the English speaking world. So, these are two amazing things that coincide here on the little, on this tradition of people meeting together for prayer. Right. And then by 1737, I've written 1937 here, which uh, happens quite often, that kind of thing. Um, George Whitfield, he'd become a national sensation. Right? He was going around Britain preaching to crowds of thousands in the outdoors. And it's unheard of, really never been heard of. Perhaps even, uh, perhaps since uh, Christianity was first brought to Britain. And then by 1738, he'd become an international sensation. Uh, he'd gone around the US at this point, or he was in the middle of going around the US, and he was preaching to even larger crowds all around New England. He actually went and preached in Jonathan Edwards' church. Jonathan Edwards um, was heard to remark somewhat churlishly after his, uh, uh, his congregants found uh, Whitfield's sermon to be so stirring that I too could be this stirring if I only preached six sermons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, even great men say things like that. Um, and <coughs> Edwards as well, not Edwards Whitfield, his voice was so loud that when he used to preach at the Van Cortland Manor, which is in uh, Westchester, it's Westchester, Westchester County, New York, that he could apparently be heard across the Hudson River in New Jersey. I don't know if I believe that. The Hudson River is very wide. Uh, but still... Um, he was, very, he was sort of very famous for, for doing this. 
And so the revival in America continued, intensified, it continued and intensified here. And then, perhaps what, you know, one of the most significant moments of all is the 21st of May 1738, because Charles Wesley has this dramatic conversion on that date, while in the company of a friend of his who was a Moravian. And his response to that you know, quite momentous occasion was to write a hymn. He actually wrote two hymns, uh, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin, which you don't tend to sing now, it's a very personal reflection, and another that's become really central to the Wesley canon, which is And Can It Be, we all sing that. Uh, he apparently always meant to have sung that on his first, uh, uh, written that on his first day of being a Christian. And then several days later, on the 24th of May, in the same year, so three days later, John Wesley experienced, famously experienced his own conversion, and his heart was strangely warmed, he wrote, while sat in a Moravian chapel on uh, Aldersgate Street in London. So, the Holy Club, really having been sort of fanned into flame by these two revivals, uh, set out to really transform Britain and the world, really. Um, and they went they went out with this new kind of evangelical faith to a nation, remember, caught between latitude and Arianism on the other hand, and when I say an Eastertized, I really mean an Eastertized, a nation that really been put to sleep on matters of faith. And then Arianism on the other hand, very popular. And the gospel that they carried was that Jesus Christ was and uh, is truly God and truly man, and that his death on the cross was the only salvation for sinful humanity that salvation is by faith alone and all must turn, repent and believe. All must be born again. And this, they believed, was euangelion, which means good news. And they began by preaching their message in the open air really to anyone who would listen. But then when people did listen, they began to consolidate. And they did that by gathering their converts into societies uh, like uh, Charles and John's father had done and, and people like him. First in London and Bristol and then across the nation as far north as Edinburgh and further north than that and also into Ireland. And then they needed to sustain those societies, right? Those people who met during the week, they didn't meet on Sunday, so they were encouraged to go to their local Anglican church on Sunday and they met during the week. Well, what were they going to do while they met during the week? These are often working class people um, who don't necessarily have a great deal of literature, many of them maybe can't read, although uh, literacy was really, uh, was really increasing at a tremendous rate at this time. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, a great many of them uh, wouldn't have been able to still. So they sent them lots of Christian literature and they also sent them lots of, uh, sort of itinerant preachers to go around the country preaching. But they also sustained them with hymns. And John Wesley published his first major hymn book uh, in 1739. The name of that, of that hymn book was called uh, Hymns and Sacred Poems. And it's on the 206th page of that volume that we find a hymn written by his brother Charles. And that hymn was called Hymn for Christmas Day. And that's the first, at the top left of the first page. So this is the first really published edition of the hymn that we now know as Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Okay, so now, why have I spent so long laying that out for you? That was quite a long 
contextual bit. Um, and that's, the reason why I've done that is because this hymn is really a reflection of its time. We don't tend to see it as a reflection of its time. We tend to see it as a Christmas carol that we sing. Uh, it's quite nice. We're not quite sure where it's come from. But actually, among other things, this hymn is actually really responding to its theological zeitgeist. So it's responding to this numbing humanistic philosophy of the latitudinarians on the one hand. There's lots of that in there. And then it's also really uh, responding to the heresy of the Arians. And rather helpfully, it can be split into those two chunks, actually. Um, so the beginning verse and then the end bit, roughly. So in verses 3, 4 and 5, those are all about the Incarnation. And in writing so strongly about the Incarnation, he's really there. That's, that's the part where he's countering Arianism. And then verses 6 through to 10, he's uh, countering latitudinarian philosophy. He's rejecting it, and he's insisting upon rebirth and transformation. So, uh, in brief, he kind of begins the hymn by declaring who Jesus is. And then he ends the hymn by insisting that uh, this requires, this truth about who Jesus is, requires a response of faith from each of us in this room and everyone else. So let's start with that first chunk then, which is verses 3, 4, and 5, which is about the Incarnation. And here I think the genius of Wesley and his prowess as a poet, that really shines through the lines here. Uh, and it's, it's really quite profound, his discussion of the Incarnation. It's also very complex, right? Even though it has very simple language, uh, it's really uh, centering uh, these verses around the hypostatic union. Uh, which is a theological term, which essentially just means this sort of mystic union of the two natures, um, God and man, within the one person. That's Jesus of Nazareth, in case you're wondering. Um, so, um, Wesley kind of marvels at this hypostatic union in the first two couplets of the second verse, which is, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Um, and here we see, firstly, Wesley using a literary technique, and it's called anaphora, right, at the beginning of the verse, which is where the poet repeatedly uses the same word to begin several lines in a poem. So here we have Christ repeated twice at the beginning of verse 2, don't we? Christ for high heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. And this acts to kind of... Is it actually three times? Okay. Three. Excellent. Oh, verse three. Is that where we are? Okay. Um, um, and this acts to focus us, because we now know that we're going to spend this verse, and I guess uh, the rest of them, focusing on Christ. This is to be a Christological reflection. And he begins this meditation by highlighting the eternal sonship of Jesus. Right? He is adored by the highest heavens. And that recalls our minds to places in the Bible, such as Matthew 3.17, right? This is my beloved Son. Then he continues by highlighting the eternal Lordship of Christ. So we've had Sonship, now Lordship. He is Christ, the everlasting Lord. And Wesley likes to make us pause and reflect throughout his hymns. And he often does that by inserting very long words. 
Um, and that, that's the mark of a really skimf, uh, skillful hymnwriter and poet, the fact that he can take the meter, right, which is the amount of beats in the line, and he can take a really long word and he can jam it in there uh, without breaking the rhythm. So we have the everlasting, right, which makes us pause and actually think about that word, everlasting. It's a long word. What does it mean? Well, it means that Christ is eternal. So we're pausing to think about that as we sing it. Uh, and then that's balanced against things like, so later we have uh, the word Emmanuel, right? Another very long word. And that causes us to reflect on this, the incredible proximity of God, right? He's God with us in flesh. So we have, on the one hand, everlasting, and we have with us, on the other hand, right? It's the mystery of the incarnation together. He is presented to us here as truly God. Right, so that was the first bit, truly God. Second bit, truly man. Humanity of Christ, that's the next two lines. He has come in time, or into time, in line three. And though he's one with the invisible God, right, we can behold, he's the word behold, or see him. That's quite an extraordinary thing. We can see God. We can see him come. So not only does the eternal, everlasting Lord step into time, but he does so via uh, that door that we all came through, which is a womb, a human womb in line four. Um, And then also, in addition to that, we have this everlasting Lord, right? this really lofty figure described using the word offspring, as well. It's another really earthy word. It's really fascinating. It sort of pays for lip service to the humanity of Christ. He's offspring. And the womb is, uh, I mean, uh, the womb was, should I say, no mere portal for him. Uh, in his humanity, he's sort of fully rendered here as the offspring of Mary, right? He's not merely born, but he is of the Virgin. That word of is very interesting. So uh, then in verse 3 we see uh, Christ named as the eternal Son, the everlasting Lord, who's come down from this unimaginably lofty, uh, this unimaginably lofty space of heaven to the confines of that human womb. So it begins by exploring Christ's entrance into the world, right, the moment of incarnation. And then Wesley moves uh, from there into the following verse, where he's talking, he's focusing particularly on the union of God with man in the person of Christ. So he builds this meditation around what I think is just several stunningly intricate paradoxes, where he's sort of juxtaposing the mysterious and the divine with the ordinary and the lowly. So in lines 1 and 2 of verse 4, he explores what it means for Christ to be truly God. Right? And then in lines 3 and 4, he explores what it is for Christ to be truly man. So if we begin with the last two lines, verses, uh, if we begin with the last two lines, lines 3 and 4, we'll do that first. This really communicates the humanity of Christ. Pleased as man, with man to appear, Jesus our Emmanuel here, is what that says. So, the first of those lines that pleased this man with man to appear, it's actually quite complicated. It took me a little while to work out what it, what it means. Uh, the first premise of the line is that Jesus is a man. 
Right. Uh, as man, therefore, he is pleased to appear or to dwell, to live with humankind. He derives pleasure, but also willingly condescends to walk amongst his creation. He is pleased as man with man to appear. It's a beautiful line. And then the second of those lines, we see him as the fulfilment of Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So in this line now, Jesus and Emmanuel here, Wesley really emphasises this sort of proximity, the imminence of God in Christ. Jesus is not just Emmanuel, God with us, but if you look there, he is our Emmanuel. So he's not just our Emmanuel, he's our Emmanuel here. So if we take that whole thing in English, because Emmanuel is, is not an English word, uh, we have Jesus, our God, with us here. That's what that line says. It couldn't be more on the nose than that. It's really a beautiful tautology. Um, he's like us, he's for us, he's with us, he is here, he's truly man. This is the message of line three and four. So lines one and two then of that verse, they are this sort of really intricate exploration of Christ's divinity then on the other hand. We've had humanity. Well, we haven't. We're going to have it in the order of the hymn book. Um, we will have it. But first we shall have, uh, uh, we shall have deity. We have veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity there. Um, so he is in line six of the incarnate deity, and we are to marvel at his very godness. <laughs> We're to hail, right? To extol, praise, speak of, greet it, his deity. Um, and this line is, is often subject to two uh, misinterpretations, and some quite sort of badly informed and unnecessary uh, blogs on, uh, on, the, on the internet about this. Um, so, this first one here, veiled in flesh. So that should not be understood as saying that Jesus' flesh was merely a veil. It's not saying that. Um, it's somehow not real. That would, be, uh, that would be to approach a kind of Gnostic heresy. Um, so it's not saying that. It's sort of seen as a, as a reference to the veiled glory of Christ, right? Which we see in his brief unveiling, places like on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, James and John, they see him transfigured before their eyes, don't they? And they see the bright shining fullness of his deity, but it's veiled most of the time. So that's what that means. It's not, it's not sort of Gnosticism. Um, and then... But then towards the end of the line it says, Bear the flesh of the Godhead see, right, which is interesting. And then there's people who sort of say that this is another heresy, that says two heresies in one line, uh, that this is modalism, right. Modalists uh, believe that, uh, that God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. He takes different modes. Um, and so, he's not saying here with Mobius that Jesus is the Godhead. Right? He's saying that within Christ we can see the entirety of the Godhead. Right? Which is 
an oblique reference to like Colossians 1.19, places like that, which says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, so that's, that's what it's a reference to. So Wesley is here powerfully asserting, actually insisting upon the very godness of Christ, the very humanity of Christ, that these things are both true, that the hypostatic union is good theology. That's what he's doing. And then having done that in verse 5, he then just presents Jesus as the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. So he says that we, he, ins- he insists that we hail, recognise, proclaim Jesus as the fulfilment of the Old Testament. In verse 5, he is the Prince of Peace who is foretold in Isaiah 9.6. He's also there the son of righteousness, which is foretold in Malachi uh, 4.2. And then if you read Isaiah, it's one of my favourite bits of the Bible actually, if you read Isaiah 25 verses 7 to 8, that promises that God will swallow up death forever. And in verse 6, Wesley proclaims Christ as the fulfilment of this. He's born that man no more may die. So, that kind of unrelenting focus on Christology there, I mean, he really pounds away at, at Christology. It's very dense. We don't think of that because we just sort of sing it at Christmas and it's quite nice. But it's, it's, it's really intense. And that's born out of a real desire to totally reject uh, Arianism and to, to proclaim an orthodox Christology, to really proclaim who Jesus is to uh, an English-speaking world and um, if you want to read if, if anybody here is interested in, uh, in the Aryan heresy uh, I've got a note in here there's a book by a chap called Maurice Wiles it's called Archetypal Heresy Arianism through the centuries it's very interesting it, it uh, charts how Arianism kept coming back and uh, it's very good actually on the 18th century it's, it's good uh, published by Crown and so uh, we know that the Wesleys were actually thinking about Arianism a lot because they wrote about it a lot, they challenged it a lot in hymns and in sermons. Particularly here, uh, I've, got one, uh, I've got one example here from one hymn where Charles, this isn't one of his best, uh, it must be said, but they were trying very hard. Um, uh, he's, he suggests that Arius is the star who's mentioned in Revelation 8.10. Right, so he writes this, there's this verse here. The star in thy right hand no more, which on the embittered waters fell, how has he shed his baleful power, wasted the earth and peopled hell, while millions drink the Aryan wine? Um, I don't imagine we'll sing that next Sunday. Uh, but uh, there we go, that's another kind of... Uh, we might stick with what Heron just saying, but that, that there is the sort of, a, you know, they're clearly thinking about this. this is a, uh, I'm not just making it up. Uh, it's a big thing. Okay, so then he's sort of having, having looked at that Aaron bit, we'll now look at the latitudinarian bit, which is verses 6 to 10. And that's about our response, right? What are we going to do in response to the truths that we heard in the first, in the first verses, right? Uh, are we going to be like latitudinarians and just kind of be good and think nice things and sort of try to try to do the correct thing. 
this is a little bit more uh, straightforward, this bit. You'll be pleased to know this bit's quite short. So, um, he, he insists really in these verses, Wesley, that the Incarnation has radical implications for human beings, for you and I. We're not simply to behave well, right? This is truly evangelical, Wesley, and he's insisting that we must be reborn, born to give them second birth. That's why he's come. We're dead in our sins, and Wesley insists that we need Christ in order to live light and life to all he brings, born to raise the sons of earth. Wesley is kind of insisting then on this radical nature of the Incarnation, uh, and its demand on our lives. Christ is born, born, born. He repeats it three times, and he's born to transform the lives of humans everywhere. To regenerate them. Not simply to show them how to be good people. And so having presented us with this reality, he then offers us a means of responding in the following verses. We're actually given a way of responding. So in verse 7, we, if we're singing, we ask Christ to come and to fix in us his home, to bruise in us the serpent's head. We actually ask Jesus to do that if we're singing. It's a prayer. In verse 8, we ask Christ to display his power, to restore us and to join us in mystic union to himself. We ask him to do that. And then in verse 9, we ask him to remove our old self, the old Adam, and to reinstate us in God's love by placing the second, the, the image of the second Adam on us. And then in verse 10, and here he uses this a little bit, um, we, we ask sort of simply to regain Christ and all that he is. That's what that verse is for. So that there is, is to combat the latitudinarianism of the day, right there. I think clearly. Uh, it's not just about uh, being, doing good, it's about this radical insistence that you must be born again. We must all be born again. So, this clearly that is a hint very much of its time, right? That's, uh, it's, it's sort of quite different to, I imagine, as to how we came in here thinking about it. It's a very good hint. So the question is, why would anybody change it? Um, and that's the next bit, which is quite short. And that's making sense of this editing process that it went through. And so first, uh, before I talk about why I think it was altered, we need to sort of make sense of, uh, we need to find out uh, how many times it was altered and who altered it, right? Sort of basic. So the hymn that we sing today, as you'll have noticed, is quite different from the one that was first published in Hymns for Christmas Day in 1739. Um, published as Hymn for Christmas Day in 1739. So that original hymn, uh, has gone through three further iterations, right, initially, and then kind of little, little changes elsewhere. So the first big change then is the second hymn on your sheet, and that was published by George Whitfield in 1753. And Mike Wesley, he published a whole bunch of hymn books for his own societies, right, which were more, which Wesley published his, the kind of Wesleyan Arminian section of the Evangelical Revival, and uh, Whitfield then edited most of them, and then published them along with a lot more hymns from Isaac Watts and some other Calvinistic hymn writers for his own kind of part of the evangelical, the sort of Methodist Calvinists. So uh, then the next one is the third hymn on your handout, and that was published by Martin Madden 
was published in 1760 for his congregation, which met at the Lock Hospital in London, which is very close, which was very close to Marble Arch. Now it doesn't exist anymore. Building. Um, and then the final one, which I think is really interesting, I, I, and I, I want to look at this more, but uh, I haven't had time thus far to, to properly take a while. <coughs> but this, this is the one, the closest to one that we sing, and that's the fourth one. And that was published in a Psalter, right? In the Church of England, they didn't have hymns. They uh, originally they just had the Psalter and they used to sing the Psalms. And there were two major different editions of the Psalter. The second one was the controversial one that was called the New Edition, and that was by uh, Nahum Tate and Nicholas Brady, and that was published in 1696, right? And that went through a whole bunch, it was then republished a whole, a whole bunch of times by the King's Printers, usually, in, in Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and in 1782, there was an edition of, of the New Edition, and that was published in Cambridge at the University Press, and that had several modern hymns in it at the back. And one of those was Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And that's the version that you can see on there. So you see there's a radical change between the third and that one. It's mainly a structural change. But the printer, it seems, took it upon himself to do that. Um, which is, I mean, extraordinary. But, uh, so let's just look at those different versions quickly. I want to point out to you what's different about them. So uh, in the Whitfield one, which is your second, your second thing, so he removes the last three verses. He leaves, there should be eight verses on there. And he makes, uh, which by the way he had a real habit of doing, he would often sort of halve Wesley's hymns. He'd just take loads of it out. Which it needed doing. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of unnecessary material really. Um, and if you read some of them, you'd, uh, which I've read most of them, you'd... Uh, You'd see. Um, so he makes these three textual alterations, right, which are really important in that hymn, which I think I've, I think I put them in bold, but I don't know how much that helps really. But so in the first verse we have, "Hark! How round the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings." That's gone, and that's replaced by, "Hark! The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King." Okay, then in the second verse. We have universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. That's gone. And that's replaced with nature rise and worship him who is born at Bethlehem. And then in verse 5, the opening phrase is, Hail the heavenly prince of peace. That's gone. And that's now, Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Okay, so he did that. Next, Madam, that's number 3. So, he, his main thing is that he alters Whitfield's alteration. So, he edits Whitfield's edit, and he changes nature rise and worship him who is born at Bethlehem. And he changes that to with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then in the new edition, the final one, that takes away verses 7 and 8, those are gone, and then it brings together verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and 5 and 6, so it alters the structure of the hymn completely, so from six, quatre, uh, from, from six quatrains to three octrains, right? Three verses with eight, uh, with eight lines in them, and then he attaches that opening couplet to the end of each verse as a refrain. So now at the end of each verse we sing, Heart the Herald Angels sing, Glorious Newborn King. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on the changes made by Whitfield and Madden. So I think those are the most interesting. Actually, I don't think those are the most interesting. I think they're very interesting. I think the last one is very is the most interesting because who was this printer uh, who did this? But, um, but um, 
Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe as I think about it, actually, the, um, th- that's how they had come to sing it, and the printer was merely sort of reflecting the, the, I guess, how it was now sung and how people had generally checked. You know, people have a tendency to do things like that, especially in churches uh, at that time. Um, so maybe he, he wasn't this sort of radical person after all, but it'd be funny if he was. Um, so uh, the question is then, why did Whitfield sort of feel this need to alter Wesley's original hymn in the first place? Right? Why, why alter it? Um, as I've already said, he, he liked to shorten Wesley's hymns and get the very best out of them. He's very good at doing that. So that's no surprise that he takes out those verses. Then the second bit is, why did he feel the need to change some of the words, particularly that first part, from hark how round the welkin rings glory to the king of kings to hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Apart from the fact that the second one is just obviously better, it's obviously like more aesthetically pleasing, it's nicer to sing, we don't really know what a welkin is, neither did people in the 18th century, <laughs> because, because this is a very old word. This isn't like a classic 18th century great word that, we're all, that we all know. Um, it's sort of a, more of an early 70s, and it's quite, it's, I mean, it's... Well, oh, I'll tell you in a minute. Hold on. Um, but why did he do that? Well, I think that, uh, I think that the reason why he did it, to, to understand that, we need to first understand why the evangelicals wrote hymns. We don't really think about that. We just sing them as part of what we do. But why sing a hymn? Well, hymns are actually often written as a kind of meditation on a specific biblical text. A lot, especially a lot of the Calvinist hymn writers did that. They would pick a text and they'd write a hymn about it. It's kind of like a sermon, in verse in a way. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he would write specific hymns for sermons that he was going to preach. So he'd give the sermon and then everybody would sing this thing that he'd written. Um, so the effect of that alteration, of Whitfield's alteration, right, it, it focuses on one specific text, I think. I think he's, he's doing what the evangelicals did. And that text is Luke 2, which I'm going to read to you, as it would have been the, 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 the King James Version at the time. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, it isn't obvious that Wesley's original hymn is responding to this text. I think it is, because of what the rest of the hymn says. It's definitely an Advent hymn. It's for Christmas Day. I think it's probably written about this text. But it's not obvious, and you and I probably wouldn't realised that it was if Whitfield hadn't made the change. 
Um, hark how round the welkin rings doesn't exactly sort of scream, ah yes, you know, shepherds and angels, right? Um, so welkin means sky or firmament, right? Which firmament is sort of, uh, it's kind of a word for the, sort of the heavenly dome or the universe, right? It has this grand, uh, it has this grand aspect to it. Um, so really, what, this, what these first few lines are actually saying is they're saying, listen, the skies are ringing with the glory of the King of Kings. That's what that line is sort of saying. So as it stands, that could be a reference to Luke 2, but actually where my mind goes is more like a reference to the Psalms. Something perhaps more like Psalm 19, which begins, The heavens declare the glory of God. That could be the text that the hymn is pinned to, and that it's, it's, it's about. And then it kind of changes down, and we realise it's Advent. We knew it was Advent already because of the name of the hymn, but, you know, it, it sort of it muddles along. So his original opening reads more like a general hymn of praise that sort of gradually becomes a Christmas hymn. And the reference to Luke 2, it gets a little lost, it's not quite directed. So Whitfield's alterations revolutionise the hymn by focusing it explicitly on Luke 2. So with Wesley we have this sort of vague reference to the Welkin, and with Whitfield we sing of angels in the heavens, and not just any angels, but herald angels. Angels who are heralds, they are the bearers of good news. So with Wesley we gave glory to the King of Kings, but with Whitfield, uh, we give glory to the newborn king. So the emphasis is on the advent, right, on Christ's coming, rather than on his general kingship in the, in the Whitfield edit. So his alteration then, I think, really strengthens the opening of the hymn, and it's definitely a meditation on Luke 2 now, as it, as, as it, as it stands after he's edited it. There's also his third edit, isn't there? I don't think I've said about that but, um, in here. But what's his third edit? It's... Yeah, Christ... Uh, use the verse in that Christ was born today. Oh yeah, he says, Heaven-born Prince of Peace, not Heavenly Prince of Peace. Again, that's born. He brings in born again. Okay, so... Now, Madden's uh, edit. So, so now, w- with Whitfield, I guess... Uh, just to sort of close on the Whitfield bit, we're rejoicing specifically at the gospel declaration which sounded over the hills of Bethlehem now. That's what we're doing. And we, we understand that's what we're doing as we sing. So Madden's edits are small but mighty, I think. And, and they, they're, again, an edit of, Whit, of what Whitfield wrote. Madden, um, I was going to say we know, but I know, I'm not sure what kind of general knowledge it is. Madden uh, had uh, a number of copies of Whitfield's hymn book and he essentially lifted most of the hymns out of it to make his own and made tiny little edits to, to a whole bunch of them. He, he made, I think, from memory, I can't remember now, I wrote about this a while ago, but I think about 200 edits. Um, very little ones. But he says that this acts to kind of really drive the point home and really pin it even more to Luke 2. So, uh, what Wesley wrote, which is universal nature, say, Christ the Lord is born today. Is that Wesley or is it Whitfield? 
Let me see. He says, right, so Wesley said, universal nature say Christ the Lord is born today. Then Whitfield changes that to nature rise and worship him who is born at Bethlehem. And then Madden says, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. So he really completes this work that was begun by Whitfield and he paraphrases Luke 2 again. The angel declares that the Saviour is born today in the city of David, in Bethlehem. And we now not only sing words to that effect, but we sing them, we proclaim them with the angels. The word with is in there, with the angelic host proclaim. So additionally, this alteration it brings a kind of real geographical immediacy to the verse. So having been transported to the hillside, we now sing that Christ is born over there in Bethlehem. That's the effect that it has nearby. And so the cumulative effect of those alterations then by Whitfield and Madden uh, is an effect really on us, actually. It redefines you and I as we sing it. That's what they do. Because I now sing to you, listen, the herald angels are singing here and now, and you sing the same to me. That's what we're all singing to each other. It's immediacy. And in the act of singing, we really transport one another, kind of imaginatively, to that hillside, and together uh, we hear the angels also as the shepherds did, right, singing. Because it's the proclamation and we're all proclaiming it. And then in the act of singing, we actually kind of become like the shepherds a little. Because we imagine ourselves uh, hearing it, uh, hearing that gospel declaration, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And in the act of singing, we sing with the angels. And in the act of singing, we sort of descend through the verses, as the shepherds did from the hillside. And there we see Christ don't we, in, in his incarnation. And then when we get there, we're reborn. We're transformed by the sight. And that's when we kind of announce that. So, I'm going to say, any questions for five minutes? And if not, then we'll sing. Do ask a question. But also, don't feel pressured to have a question. <laughs> Um, so I, I was getting a bit mixed up at the beginning with the dates. The, the, their conversion was that before they started the Holy Club or when they were in the Holy Club? Exactly. So the Holy Club is a very interesting thing because actually um, it Wesleyans, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the Wesleys would and Whitfield would kind of renounce the practices of the Holy Club afterwards because they would, they would come to see it as pharisaical. So even though their friends who were mocking them for being Methodists probably weren't Christians, they were also actually probably correct. There's a little bit too much method. It was about praying a certain number of times a day, reading the Bible a certain number of times a day, having a certain number of conversations a day, keeping a diary to, to record, uh, you know, you must record... Uh, what God has done in your life today and the bad thoughts that you had and 
ways that you need to change and all that kind of thing. They were, they were very methodical about it, about their Christianity. So yes, uh, it, was, it was afterwards. Yeah. Not sure when Whitfield um, when Whitfield's conversion is dated to. I can't remember now. But uh, with, uh, both Wesleys go around actually preaching before they're converted and there's a Moravian chap who advises John, he says, preach until you feel it, or preach until you believe it, or something. Um, which we would kind of be horrified behind <laughs> today. Um, uh, but yeah, that, yeah. Good question. Anyone else? Yes. Um, I wonder about the phrase late in time. Mm. I tend to think that that sounds yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. The word late is a very interesting word. Um, I, I think that th- that that phrase is sort of deployed is deployed by theologians throughout history, especially in the 18th century and the 17th century, late in time. They don't mean they don't mean late in terms of you know where were you tardiness. They mean kind of at the appointed time, and it's also eschatological. It's uh, towards the end of things, late in time, um, and human history being this long thing, and Jesus coming just here, just at the just at the right time towards the end. Uh, so yeah, but it, it's. Uh, yes, you're right. Uh, people could now kind of think that that was uh, having a bit of a dig at God's perfect timing. But yeah, no other question. Do you know why the final two verses were lost? Why they were taken away? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I don't. Um, and I've been in churches and people have insisted on singing them. Um, they're perhaps not as uh, if I could just look at it because I can't remember yeah um, I think uh, what it does is it actually acts to remove the evangelical bit really I'm not sure if I like it Um, because this is the bit where, and there's a reason why Whitfield and then subsequently Madden kept it in, because they felt that this bit was very important, that having sang about who Jesus was, we then need to turn around and kind of ask him to come. We need to involve ourselves in it, rather than just observing who he is and speaking about who he is. Um, we then need to, uh, I guess, uh, fully inhabit the hymn. Um, I don't know why. Perhaps people had ceased to sing them. Um, perhaps uh, this hymn became very popular among Anglicans uh, and outside of the evangelical movement, and as a result, they kind of just dropped it and stopped singing it. Also, uh, I think that we kind of take for granted now is that Christmas has, uh, has always been what it is. Um, Advent and Christmas, of course, is celebrated much less, it was, it was uh, much less observed, it was much less sort of frantic and excited. Um, and it gradually became more so 
uh, especially as we head into the Victorian era, it becomes, you know, with Dickens famously, this really this great pagan festival actually. Um, but this is a little bit more cosy and Christmassy rather than this kind of, you know, evangelical. Now we come, desire of nations come. Yeah, so maybe that's why. I don't really know. I have to look into that. I'm very interested by that actually. Um, yes. Are there any other questions? Yes. Um, did Wesley write to you as well? Like, did the tunes matter what he did from there? Good question. So, uh, the tunes were. Those. Uh, well, this is an interesting thing to think about. Uh, the tunes were. There's a set of common tunes and common meters at the time. And. Uh, the Wesleys in particular chose to write their hymns in these meters so that they could be put to these common tunes. They didn't write the tunes themselves so that people would know of this grand old tune. Now, the really funny thing about that is that many of those tunes were originally used for things like uh, kind of uh, terrible sailor songs and things like that. And also, uh, a number of them were used in kind of saucy operas and things like that. So, when people militate against, um, I hesitate to use the word saucy, my brother in the room, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, um, but, but when, uh, when people militate against the use of kind of modern musical instruments and things like that in worship today, and so I've had a number of these conversations at, at Wycliffe um, with kind of BCP only type people who say we should be singing the great old you know, traditional hymns and none of this electric guitar bass guitar, drum stuff uh, actually these hymns were using tunes that were being sung in very secular and often unsavoury operas and places um, so they were, they, and it wasn't just they were taking the instruments they were literally taking the tunes so there could have been non-Christians sat in the, in the congregation purposefully singing the other words right, to these tunes it may have been, I imagine there probably were because non-Christians used to like to go and disrupt uh, and often get converted in the process that's actually how Martin Madden got converted he went to hear Wesley preach with the aim of he was, very, he was very good at doing impressions of people, and he went to learn with the aim. He went to learn with the aim of learning how he spoke to go back and kind of take him off in front of his friends. Mm-hmm. And he went back to the pub and said, uh, "I'm, I'm going to go. I've become a Christian." Uh, that's actually how it happened. I think, unless there's one more question, then yes. And um, you can ask the question about what the tune we sing to that now. I think it's by Right, yeah, the, the one that we sing now is, is Mendelssohn, but the original tune, I don't know what it would have been, and um, I don't know where it came from. And there's, there's sort of very, there's, there's a whole bunch of common tunes that, as I said, that people sang at the time. And if you go, so, so Madden wrote, uh, Madden published a tune book with tunes in it, because he was also a musician, some of which he may have written, it's difficult to tell people didn't often attribute things to, to, to themselves um, so but yeah I don't know where the original came from and the, the, the one we see now is Mendelssohn from what I, yeah yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, Mendelssohn wrote something else but then it's a lot of 
Right, which is, I guess, another example of that. Um, what year was it? Um, I'm musically illiterate, I'm afraid, which is perhaps uh, bad for a Japanese. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, right. Uh, so we're going to sing another interesting hymn now, which is similarly complicated, but I won't tell you about that. Uh, this hymn was written by two people. Um, so yeah, why don't we all stand and sing?